Hello and welcome to the Austrian AI podcast with your usual host, Manuel Pasieka. Today on the show, I have the pleasure to talk to Stefan Habenschuss, the head of machine learning at Black Shark AI. Hello, Stefan. Hi, Manuel. Nice to talk to you. Thank you very much for coming on to the show. Um, Black Shark AI, I must say I came across um, the company because of your recent collaboration with Microsoft and your very successful project with the flight simulator uh, in which you have been digitizing or creating a digital twin of the complete Earth, if I understand it, the surface of the Earth, before the, from the 1.5 billion buildings, which is amazing. And congratulations to that project. Thanks a lot, yeah. It's a wonderful project. Um, but maybe before we start to talk about Blake Shark AI, maybe you can start with you giving a um, short introduction about yourself, your background, and how you came or came to AI, to machine learning, and became the head of machine learning at Black Shark AI. Yeah, sure. Uh, yeah, first of all, thanks for you know, talking to me on this podcast. It's it's a big honor, basically, to be one of your first guests. And uh, I think you're going places uh, in Austria, so that's really cool to be part of this. Um, about myself, um, I think I've always been interested in you know in techy stuff early on. Um, and uh, at when I was eight, my parents actually bought the first PC. It was a Commodore 286, and I started playing my first games on the computer. This is really how I got hooked. And that's also, I think, where my passion for games really started, right? Uh, I think it's a common story for many people, especially in the you know, late 80s, early 90s games was, uh, computer games are really new and uh, not at all what they are today, um, not as widespread. And uh, so every new game was really exciting. And um, you know, I just remember teaming up with my friends and, and trying the next game and it was a really cool time. And uh, very early, I actually started to to play around with, uh, I think it was Visual Basic back then, uh, no, QBasic, uh, Q I think it was back then, yeah. Mm -hmm. Some form of basic um, that was pre-installed on, on the Commodore. And I started to just try around, I think I was eight back then, just because of curiosity, right? And I wanted to create my own games, really. That was the, the main motivation back then. And so, you know, this is where it all started for me. And um, so the, the, my passion for games is, has been really long because of that. And I think my interest in AI um, was built up a little bit later. To some extent, also because I, I, I discovered how difficult it actually is to program anything, to teach anything to the computer, and uh, how amazing it is that the human uh, can do so many things so you know, effortlessly. And there's this huge gap um, that was just a mystery to me. Mm -hmm. And I remember my math teacher asking the, the, to the class, I think it's seventh grade, uh, you know, who, who thinks that an artificial intelligence will ever be as intelligent as a, as a person. And uh, I felt that was a really interesting question. I, of course, didn't know the answer to that, but I wanted to find out, essentially. I think people still don't know. So <laughs> Yeah, people still don't know, exactly. Yeah. Um, and I think, yeah, and then I just, uh, then it was quite obvious at that point, I would say that uh, I was going to study computer science, uh, telematics actually back then at the Technical University of Graz. And, uh, and then I specialized on, in my master's on uh, artificial intelligence, machine learning, and um, I actually did a, a project then together with the uh, University of Zurich and ETH for my master's where I also got into contact with one of the top scientists in computational neuroscience. So that was also a really interesting experience for me. 
Um, and, um, and because the, this was also, I think at that time I really thought more about how the brain works and a little bit less about the engineering side of it. So I really wanted to understand what, what it is that makes humans so intelligent and uh, if, there's any, if there's any chance that we can find out about it in, any, any near, in, in the near term. And so that's why I went into this computational neuroscience field. And um, yeah, I, it, it was very in, super interesting. Um, you, I came into contact with biology and all these, these labs that, uh, that actually take measurements in the brain. Um, and uh, the main problem I discovered in that area was that it was not fast enough for me. So I, I saw the trajectory of where this whole field is going, the neuroscience field, and I just extrapolated. And I, I thought it's gonna take 50 years or longer until they actually discover something really new because a lot of the concepts had, had already been discovered, but you know, to get, actually get the measurement uh, devices um, an order of magnitude better and more precise and uh, cover really the whole, like a la much larger areas of the brain simultaneously, a little bit what Neuralink is trying to do, right? Mm -hmm. Now, um, this seemed completely out of reach like 15 years ago and, uh, or 10 years ago still. And now with Neuralink, there's a little bit of a glimmer of hope that we, that this can be accelerated much like Tesla, what Tesla has done for the auto industry, right? Um, but yeah, it's still a long way, I think. And um, uh, patience is not one of my you know, best traits, I have to say. So that's why I really had to go into industry and try to actually build something that works today and uh, not wait for some insights that you know, will take 20 years to follow. I understand. I think actually it's very interesting. I just shortly want to touch upon it um, because I was reflecting on this uh, as we as you mentioned it already when we were talking off mic um, before. Um, I think like your motivation that, that drove you into machine learning, <clears throat> you had this motivation to understand general artificial intelligence and how the human mind works, and uh, in general, in uh, artificial in general, in, in general, um, I think that is very interesting in the sense uh, that I must say that I know many many other people that are currently um, being data scientists and machine learning experts who actually have not that motivation but are coming from different fields or from other fields and i find actually this this very interesting because it's um as i understand it to me there's this very strong clip for this this um this tension between let's say people who have been in the field quite for quite some time and people who recently who came into the field let's say after the deep learning boom after 2012 and say because i have the feeling like the ones that have been there in the past they have been very much been motivated by similar reasons as the ones you mentioned before so the ones we are who let's say did the old symbolic ai did a lot of the gofi good old-fashioned intelligence they have been motivated to really let's say understand um, the human mind understand what intelligent really means and how to build general artificial intelligence. And after 2012, of the feeling there were many more people coming from different fields who saw it more like, as you said, like more from the engineering perspective, where you said, okay, now we can build, we can use those tools and we can build specific um, solutions. We can build um, solid businesses on top of them. And um, suddenly, like, um, to me, there's a bit of this gap. Where, and you can see, I think, a lot in the tensions of the uh, high class. Uh, um, journals and, and publications there where many times you see like let's say some of the experienced researchers claiming that a lot of the stuff which is shown now is now 
simply a, a wrap up of something that they have done in the past and they just push the next boundary and something and they don't see the focus on on the bigger goals of trying to achieve general artificial intelligence but they see it only um like the, many of the newcomers they just want to push push um like the the board a bit further and want to just <clears throat> produce something which is slightly better than um than that has been existing in the past yeah absolutely and i totally agree uh it, it's very common for for people to get schmidt to work nowadays uh you know about the term right i actually mm -hmm. met uh jürgen schmidt over in i think in 2010 uh, where i was working on a, on a on a project where he was also part of it and uh you know, he, he's clearly an outstanding mind and he, he foresaw so many things that would later be this rediscovered by people who just didn't read the, the history right mm -hmm. um i think it's fine but um I see. I think it, it's easy to lose track of the the bigger picture when you're in the middle of you know, the technical details. And where, when the first thing you knew about AI was actually Nvidia GPUs and uh, the PyTorch, right? Mm -hmm. So when you grow up, you take this as a given, and you don't even think what is there anything outside of that, for instance, right? I don't know if if we should think about that, right? But it's just one of many examples where people just take as a given what they what they grew up with. Um, much like you know, when you grow up with your parents, you sort of just take everything as a given, and only only later you learn about other things that exist, uh, you know, in 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 the world. And so I think it's it's very common for people to. It's very hard to think out of outside the box, right? Of course, this is of course. How you 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 grow up, yeah. And you need a bit of perspective on it, I guess, as you mentioned. But then let's then the, let's move it back. Then let's move it, uh, to the to the main topic of the interview to to Black Shark AI and your work you have been doing have been doing there. Can you maybe yeah. um, give us a short overview to some extent um, what you have been doing at Black Shark AI and, and in particular even this um, digital twin uh, work that you have been doing in cooperation, for example, with Microsoft? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So. Um... Yeah, so after my PhD, I actually joined Bongvish, which is uh, the gaming company that started out working together with Microsoft on the flight simulator. And uh, so, so Bongvish is a, a really cool, uh, nice little game studio in Graz, which actually became the biggest one in like the biggest video game uh, studio, I think, in a couple of years ago of Austria. Oh, um, congratulations to that. Yeah, thank, thanks. And uh, it's, um, yeah, I, I actually worked there as a student uh some time ago um and i really like the atmosphere and the the climate um, it, it's a very open place essentially um, op open exchange of ideas and uh, very flat hierarchy and all this uh appealing a very appealing environment and so i knew that this was very attractive to me uh especially when it comes to a place where ai has not really set foot firmly i mean if you especially deep learning, right? New machine learning techniques, mm -hmm. uh, but probably would be uh, in the coming years. And uh, I think this this turned out to be quite true because when I joined back then, it was hmm, well, it's 2015, maybe. Mm -hmm. It was actually around the breaking point, right? For computer vision. Um, and uh, it was just a matter of time until an opportunity came along for within gaming to work on, on deep learning. And so the first opportunity was um, another one, um, but the, the really big one was then the flight simulator, where we actually, the task was to work on the reconstruction of the entire planet, essentially, um, 
and uh, the a lot of a lot of the planets has already been mapped in terms of imagery but it's most mostly 2d and so the challenge was really turned to turn 2d into 3d and so for for this project since it was just such a big project we actually decided then to move this to a separate company um this was the official um you know this happened officially a little bit later but the plan was all along to do this and so this is black shark .ei, which started out with the flight simulator project and now is actually doing lots of different things, right? For many different companies, yeah. And uh, so me personally, uh, so I, I, um, I was very eager to work on, the, on this project, of course, um, being, it was sort of my plan all along to work on AI in the gaming industry. So this was a really great opportunity for me. And I slowly, you know, gathered resources uh, within the team I had to convince a few people that this was really important uh, in the beginning actually nobody really told us to use deep learning or anything right it was just mm -hmm. we, we're gonna need to make this game what's the content and how can you make make this content this was the goal really and so the the, the from an AI uh, perspective to move to deep learning is obvious uh, if you know that there's imagery around and especially if you're working with Microsoft you know that they have been maps so that's there's just such a huge database actually lying around for you to harvest. But uh, for from a gaming industry perspective, this wasn't, wasn't obvious at all. So this actually came from us. Mm -hmm. And uh, we said, yeah, we know how to do it. And uh, let us work on this. And uh, with the proposal, they really liked that. We talked initially to Microsoft and then also to Asobo, the French company that, that also worked on the flight simulator on the engine part, especially. And... Um, and this is how it all started. And then there was a... And, and sorry, just to clarify, yeah. so to understand it, so that, this was already 2015? Uh, no, this was, uh, the beginning was, I think, 2016-ish. Yeah, 2016, late 2016, I think. Because I agree yeah. that, like, in hindsight, it, it, it seems like a perfect fit, but I can imagine that 2016, still, it um, there would have been other possibilities uh, on the table as well, and it would have probably been still very ambitious to say okay we are going to digitalize like the the, the complete planet um i can imagine yeah. that, that i mean it looks like um it was quite a bet and i i'm impressed that as well that you convinced microsoft to really to, to put this trust into you small especially in a small company um to to really do that yeah yeah i i, I totally agree that um i think it, i mean there's, there's always a certain amount of luck involved you have to talk to the right people and be able to convince them, right? Uh, I think we were really lucky in that regard. And uh, nobody really knew what it's going to work out or how long it's going to take, right? Uh, so when I took on this, uh, the the whole deep learning part of this project, I was I was not very sure, honestly, how long it's going to take, if it's going to take one year or three years, right? Mm -hmm. Or four years or five, Who's, who knows? Because nobody had, had really done uh, this global scope um, before and the biggest projects that were coming out actually around this time were, were countrywide detections of buildings, for instance. And um, also the whole research uh, domain was focused on, yeah, maybe this city or this, you know, this, this, uh, this region, but not, that certainly very far from, from a global scope. So this was definitely a bet. And uh, it was also quite stressful, to be honest, uh, mm -hmm. quite stressful project to work on. Uh, but you know, in the end, it's obviously paid off because uh, there's nothing better than something you work hard for and then it actually <laughs> succeeds. 
So that's that's actually the best to happen. I understand. Um, can you then give us like, something like a, a five minute short description of, of, of the platform you have been building there before we go into uh, more details on the specific elements of it? Yeah, for sure. So, um, so the, the, the goal really was to create content for, for the game, meaning all the buildings on the planet, all the vegetation and anything else that we can do uh, for to make the, the game actually nicer or um, remove some of the problems with being maps, um, the satellite imagery that's, that's used. Uh, for instance, clouds that are actually baked into the textures, right? Or really ugly breaks between two um, image acquisition takes uh in the middle of you know in the city in, in the middle of a city um where we should just see one discolorization on the on the one end and, and completely different color on the other side and uh so everything we can do basically to make the game pretty and nice and complete that was the goal but we knew that we're not going to make this unless we're going to invest heavily in, into our tooling um, and we basically had to build the, the factory first in order to produce the content and this is something that um we knew from, from gaming very well, because in gaming, it's almost always like that. And before um, before the, the, the big uh, free um, gaming engines came along and dominate, started dominating everything like Unreal and, and, and Unity, uh, game studios actually had to completely build their own toolings from scratch in order to support all the content that was created for games, right? So the, from, a, from a gaming perspective, this wasn't actually so radical. But I think we took the spirit from gaming and applied it to this AI field. And that what came out is a platform really where uh, we, a data platform essentially, where we collect collected all the data, made it accessible to everyone on the team, uh, made it really easy for developers to, to create workflows, to apply certain functions you know, on, the, on the data set. And all of this, um, so there's, uh, there's a lot of uh, orchestration tools out there, right? But we looked at, at many of these and found that they're not actually applicable to this scale. So we, we had to build an orchestration tool um, for handling these super large scale uh, tasks that cover the whole planet um, as part of our tooling as well. Mm -hmm. So there was, there was that whole part and then all the visualization, all the data needs to be visualizable, right? Uh, not just the final game, but all the intermediate data steps also. So you can imagine you, you have the imagery, right? And then the next processing step is you have the, the masks, the segmentation masks from, from deep learning. And then you have a few additional layers like uh, that tell you what are the, um, what whatever the AI is seeing basically, like what different roof types are there in this image. And you have all kinds of overlays uh, mm -hmm. on top of the imagery. And then you have uh, the next intermediate uh, point is the vectorized polygons for the buildings. The, and when you click on them, you get uh, all the attributes that are listed for that building. You know, and, then, and this basically for everything that for, for all the data types. So it's really a, like a sequence of different processing steps that are laid out also visually in front of, in front of you on this platform. Uh, it's also really important because you need to debug any error effectively, right? So when anything goes wrong in the end, you need to be able to go back and see where it actually went wrong in the whole processing pipeline. Mm -hmm. And uh, yeah, so this is what's really, really important. And I think without it, we just would have never been able to do this, this job.
Makes sense. Actually, I wanted to touch on the tooling um, on the second part of, of, of the interview, but um, mm, and, sure. and I hope you're going to go into this part, but um, then to, to the product, let's say itself. So if I understood it correctly, it's as you said, that you are taking imagery from different sources and you, let's say, in the end, turn them into a 3D representations of buildings, cities, and the complete um, surface of the planet. Um, can you maybe for, for our listeners um, contrast this bit with what I guess is, is the experience that they have with is comparing it to something like Google Earth? Oh yeah, yeah, that definitely. So the you could ask yourself why wasn't Microsoft Flight Simulator built with Google Earth? Well, two reasons. First of all, it's Google and not Microsoft. And second, it's, it's the wrong technology for this approach uh, for a game. And, and the reason is if you actually zoom in into Google Earth enough, you, you realize that there's just a limited resolution um, and you, you don't actually see the details of the windows. You don't see, uh, it, it looks really crappy. It's, it's not good enough for a triple A game, just from a visual perspective, right? Um, so it's great if you're, if you're far away and you don't need to be able to render it accurately with, with the weather and the lighting, because, uh, Google earth really is, it has baked in shadows sometimes, uh, or, or it's sometimes the shadows are actually taken out, but there's no easy way to actually render the scene in an, in a realistic manner because you don't have any semantic information about the surfaces. It's basically just geometry and, and colors, right? And, um, and I'm sure Google is also working in, in the background on improving this, uh, make no mistake, right? About that, but um, at the moment um, with the approach that they're using, it's, not, it's just not the right uh, approach for a AAA game. And as it turns out, not just for games, but also for many other applications, it's not the right um, approach. And we can talk about that as well. But uh, so how, how do we actually reconstruct 3D? Um, we, we, we first try to understand everything we see. So imagine a, a satellite image from top, we see a couple of buildings and a couple of trees. So first we try to completely parse the scene uh, semantically, meaning using AI to detect all the different objects and all the attributes that we're seeing about these objects. And, uh, and then as a next step, we uh, create a 3D model essentially from scratch that is fed with these attributes that we detected. And uh, so it's placed exactly where we, we see the object. It, it, it inherits the color and the type that we see uh, on the satellite imagery. And uh, for everything that we don't know, which some, sometimes if we don't, if we only have the top-down image, for instance, uh, we have to create a plausible version then of a billing. And uh, and this is also something that, of course, Google Earth uh, can only work if you have all the images from all the all the images from all the different locations, right? Because otherwise, you can see the sides of the buildings. In our approach, actually, we we can already create a super realistic, plausible world if you only have top-down imagery. So that's also from a commercial standpoint, it's much uh, much cheaper to do this. Um, and, uh, and so it's really a combination, right, of, of uh, computer vision with deep learning AI to extract everything you can extract from the images in order to completely parse it semantically. And then there's still a little bit of a gap typically in order to get to the point that you can create a 3D model. And we fill that gap with 
everything, all the information we have about the region, like what kind of buildings are there typically in this region, right? And this is something that artists actually create. And they, they create the different building types. And then there is a catalog uh, of, of different building types. And depending on what the building looks from top, we can select and automatically the, the, a plausible building type for that. Like single family houses, right? They have a typically shape and, and, and form from above. Very interesting. I just wanted to hook in that um, your description that you gave now, um, right now, um, by look, listening to this, I'm as well looking at one of your slides in the presentation that you gave of the GTC 21, the NVIDIA company about different AI products and services, and um, where you gave a presentation concerning your product, which I think is, captures very nicely this the, the path that you're describing. And I will try to, to include the links uh, into the show notes, but the slide concerning detection, enrichment, and reconstruction, where you... Um, describing this process where on, on one side you have the different modalities as inputs, as you described, like MIT and geo-information data, satellite information, point cloud information, and then you have this wonderful, nice description of a pipeline where you have this AI detection, AI enrichment, and 3D reconstruction, right? Yeah, this, is, this is what you're exactly. describing. That's, that's exactly what I'm talking about. So the, the detection part is really the whatever you can actually uh, see and also what humans can see. So there's, uh, there's a certain limit to what you can actually see in the image. And, and uh, like, for instance, the best example for, for this is when you have a top-down image, you don't see the facades, right? So that's a very simple example of that. And then uh, the enrichment path is really what I, what I was describing, yeah. Uh, adding additional information based on, this is typically done a curated data set of uh, artists come together to train for different regions, different uh, prototypes of buildings, what they think is, is plausible for this area. And, uh, and the last step is then putting all this together in a 3D reconstruction. And, and here the, 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 the magic I would say happens compared to Google Earth. Here we can really create super high detail uh, 3D reconstructions where you can zoom in and you can actually try this in, in flight simulator. Uh, you can fly really close to the road and you can actually look inside the buildings, inside mm -hmm. the living rooms and there's like, TVs flickering, right? And all this. So that, and these are some effects that you can only do if you have a complete semantic understanding of, you know, uh, of, the, of the whole scenery. Yeah. But then maybe going a bit like more into detail and starting maybe at the beginning of this pipeline concerning the input. So what kind of modalities do you, do you support and what kind of modalities can you, can you actually handle? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So we started out using imagery only RGB actually, because this is what BMAPS supports uh, or provides on a global scale. And uh, typically we, we work with, uh, we worked with 40 to 60 centimeter imagery. That's something that's supported on BMAPS for most of the planet. And um, that was our starting point. And uh, there's, now there's many different things we can we can do on top of that. So first of all, we can just higher resolutions, obviously, for RGB. There's also a lot of imagery out there. Actually, most of the satellite imagery supports uh, near infrared has near a uh, near infrared band, which is really nice if you want to detect anything related to vegetation. And so this increases just increases accuracy and and, and makes it much easier um, for for a lot of vegetation related detection tasks. Also for, let's say, if you want to distinguish different types of crops, um, for that, it's also great. And um, and uh, some satellites even have eight bands or, or more um, channels. 
So all of this is essentially you know, supported by our uh, the, by the platform tooling, and we're now re heavily ramping up our capabilities in this area to support all these different kinds of uh, multi-spectral imagery, actually. And um, and so this is about the the imagery itself. And then on top of that, we we also we really like to have uh, digital surface models if they're available. That's sort of obvious because with the digital surface models, they detract, they trace the elevation. Of, of the surface of the earth, essentially, including also the buildings and the vegetation and everything. And uh -huh. with that- It's interesting, I never heard about this. So who is providing this kind of data or whether you get this kind of data? Uh, yeah, so typically, so the satellite imagery providers like to provide this data um, as an additional product to their satellite images because you can actually compute this from the images. If you take uh, multiple images from the same location from different angles, then you can actually calculate uh, the, the height profile essentially, right? Mm -hmm. And so satellite image, imagery companies also aerial Im um, imagery providers, like uh, actually one of the, the, the biggest players in, in this field is, is from Graz also, Vexel uh, imaging. So uh, they, they're also, they have really high profile products. They're um, seven centimeter imagery and uh, really high quality DSM and DTMs that we can we can use. Uh, it's actually a nice coincidence, right? That that mm -hmm. uh, yeah, this Vexel I think was uh, it was bought by Microsoft at some point and then uh, now it's a, an independent company again, but it's really next door to us. That's fortunate. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Um, and yeah, so this is really important. So the, the height profiles uh, are really great if you want to, you know, derive the right heights of buildings and vegetation and all. Um, but they also actually help in the detection process of the, the objects themselves. That's um, that's that's one of the, the big things actually you can do to increase accuracy. Like a common example is um, how do you distinguish a building with a parking lot on top? from just a parking lot, if you have a top-down view. That's a really difficult thing. And we're, in many cases, we're still struggling with that and, and, and trying to find ways to work around it if you don't have this height profile. If, the height, if you have the height profile, it's sort of easy, right? Because then you can just see that there is a building. If you only have the top-down image, then these kind of things are just uh, harder to disambiguate. Yeah. And, uh, and then, of course, the, there is there's additional data sources that also give us information about the size of the buildings. Like it's called oblique imagery. These are typically aerial views from so images taken from a plane that are taken like at a 45 degree angle, for instance. So you see the sides of the buildings and uh, um, this allows you to, to derive also information about the, the window arrangements, the colors of the, and the materials of the, of the facades and all that. And so here we're really, this is still not something we, we can do at scale. So this is not something that, that this was, we're still building this out essentially, these capabilities. So we've, so we've done this successfully in a, small, a couple of smaller projects and now we're scaling this up also. And probably yeah, by the end of the year or next year, early next year, we're gonna be able to do this, support this also at scale. 
interesting. How is it actually? Because I know like other systems that um, have multimodal inputs often face the challenges of um, correctly overlapping them or better said, having a finding a representation where you can have these different modalities, as you said, like even having in the sense with different resolutions um, to, to really make sure that, that, uh, that you know which part of the, of a specific picture in the one modality corresponds to the to to the right place in let's say in the other modality yeah absolutely it's a big topic and it's one that's that's commonly underestimated uh, the registration between different uh, images and mm -hmm. also different uh, we also use uh, vector data sources uh, like uh, OpenStreetMap if we can and that this is always a topic uh, open street map buildings if they're sometimes we you know we want to use them for different purposes, but they're all typically misaligned with uh, the imagery we have. And uh, the automatically regist reg registering these this different data sources is one of the big things you have to do in order to get to the accuracy actually you want to get to. Uh, otherwise, you have a just a systematic shift or mm -hmm. error in your, in your data sets, which translates typically also into uh, quite big errors in the, in the outputs then. Mm -hmm. I can imagine. Um, but then maybe one question, so moving a bit in the direction of the eye detection, so the first part of your of your platform that makes make use of these modalities. So how is it then, um, I would imagine, as we already touched upon it before, you're using the capabilities of deep learning models to, to, to analyze the, those, uh, those input, the input data. Um, how is it, were you able to make use? I mean, I can imagine that for, for the art, the type of segmentation that you're performing, as I guess one of being the one of the first tasks, were you able to use like, let's say, established architectures and models? I can imagine something like YOLO would be something that, that, that uh, maybe uh, would be a fit or did you have like to develop your own architectures and did you really do a lot of, let's say, um, basic research in order to, to, to start out your projects there? Mm. So we tried a few different architectures in the beginning um, and we really focused on the semantic segmentation um, architectures for various reasons. Uh, the biggest one is that um, you know, if you want to do instant segmentation in an image with uh, a thousand buildings, this becomes really extremely uh, slow. And if you want to work on the whole planet, um, this becomes really a limiting factor. So we wanted to work on uh, we need the optimization of our whole pipeline was always in in the, in the back of our minds. How are we, are we actually going to get this to work on the whole planet? So we had a really uh, challenging technical task to solve in itself. But then in addition, we also had, had to make sure that it's going gonna, it's gonna to perform really well. So that's why uh, some of the techniques basically dropped out immediately. And we were left with, uh, with uh, semantic segmentation models that uh, and there we experimented with a few different architectures. Essentially, in the end, we found that the unit architecture with a um, you know, with a ResNet kernel is already pretty good mm -hmm. you know, for for a lot of the tasks. And um, with a, a ResNet backbone uh, encoder, and um, and then there's just a couple of tricks. Then we we had to we had to add to that in order to make it work for for our purposes. Um, but but. I would say on the architecture side, I think the, the, the research community is very heavy on neural architectures, very heavily focused on neural architectures. Um, and from a, from, an, um, from a, the perspective of 
engineering if you actually have to solve a problem like you said you you don't want to go with the the latest which is maybe a little bit risky right you you want to do we you know we want to take a model or something that's that's a little bit established already and where other people have actually successfully already used it because it reduces risk in actually in, in engineering and um and and another point is that with if you focus your what we found at least is if you focus your attention on creating really high quality training data and creating it really fast that gives you uh planability mm -hmm. much more than relying on r d to come up with the next huge thing in, in your architecture right so I, I think we just given the time pressure of the project and all it was fairly clear that we had to do something like this um there is always there was always r d involved but uh, we found that with relatively basic architectures, we can get really high performances. Yeah. That's good. That's nice to hear. Yes. And how is it then? So as you said, like we have the input, you do, uh, you have segmentation, uh, semantic segmentation, and then it goes into the AI enrichment phase, if I understood it correctly. Um, right. So, so what, let's say, what is the output then of, of the detection and what, what is actually done then in the enrichment phase? Yeah. So the detection, uh, outputs various masks um, as a first step. These are typically seg semantic segmentation masks, which means the mask, uh, this pixel belongs to a building, this pixel belongs to, to a tree, this pixel belongs to a cloud, etc. And this uh, information is then, we can use it to vectorize it and actually create polygons because this is a, an intermediate step in the whole process. For buildings, it's actually necessary if you want to convert it into a proper 3D reconstruction later, because we really want to know where are the vertices, the corners of the buildings, right? So uh, this polygonization step is, is, is really important for buildings. Uh, it also simplifies the geometry because deep, the deep learning outputs are never 100% correct. And there are some small errors here and there. And you, uh, in this polygonization step, we also correct these errors automatically by applying constraints that are specific to the building shapes. Um, so typically building shapes wind force, uh, for instance, if it's, it's close to 90 degrees, snap it to 90, 90 degrees. Like this, these kind of constraints are really important in order to be able to have a robust pipeline uh, mm -hmm. and not propagate all the errors that the deep learning makes, right? Um, and so uh, the polygons in the end, or sometimes the masks and the polygons, this is really what detection delivers in the first place. And, uh, and of course, for buildings, there's also a number of attributes that we detect, like, uh, especially the, the, the roof color and the roof type, which is also derived using deep learning. And we also, we can also do things like occupancy type. So think of residential, commercial or industrial building and uh, some subtypes there. We can, we can detect churches, for instance, right? And things like that. So uh, we have the shape of the, the building, a couple of attributes, and this is really the output of the detection phase. And um, after that, the, the enrichment pass. Um, so that is if you only have uh, only have top-down imagery. If you also if you also want to use facades information, then of course we have additional information about the facades. These are additional attributes we can attach. To, to these objects in the detection phase. So depending on 
you know how much data we really in, have in, in in the beginning of the pipeline you know, there's a different set of attributes essentially coming out and and then in the enrichment pass we we fill all the gaps that we we need to in order to do a full 3d reconstruction to everything that was not visible in the input data we try to fill up uh, with things like um, okay, what, what kind of building is this now? Which of the models, 3D models, should we actually choose? What kind of color of the facades should we actually apply if this wasn't wasn't visible? Uh, how many um, floors does this building have? You know, what's the arrangement of the windows? Where is the the door? All these kind of information that you need in actually to 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 properly render uh, a high quality building in the game. This needs to be added. And when so you talk about adding information here, this is really interpolation in the sense. So they're, they're, you make use of models that you train to provide this information to complete, let's say, the, this um, this representation of a of a building, or is this kind of the or this heuristics and algorithms that you developed in order to to fill them? Yeah, it's it's actually a combination. So there's definitely a lot of um, manual tuning involved in this step. Uh, some of it is uh, based on, you know, uh, on just based on data. Um, we, we collect input output samples, but a lot is also manually tuned information by artists. And uh, and of course the the fraction of the, the the parameters that are actually derived using manual manually tuned heuristics is constantly decreasing, as you can imagine, because the algorithms gradually take over. But uh, it's still a mix at this point. And it's just because it's um, from a practical standpoint, it's, it's doable. Mm -hmm. It's very doable. And, um, and it, it, also gives for, it also gives you, uh, you know, just artistic control. To, to mm -hmm. the for, for, for a game, this was especially important. Now it's becoming, I would say, less and less important the more other applications we have. But for, for the game, it was, this was also an obvious, obvious thing we wanted to have, this, this direct control over you know, what kind of buildings are we actually picking here. And, you know. is, this re is this related to what you, in this GTC presentation that you gave, um, you called split grammar approach? Yeah. Uh, so this is the, you, you could say that this, this, this is already the, 3D reconstruction. So, um, but I guess you could also, it's in between enrichment and reconstruction because this turns the, the sparse information that we have. So the, the, the rough outline of the building plus the attributes and everything that was added into a more, into a richer 3D geometry. So it expands it and uh, the split grammar approach really takes um, takes the, the, the base geometry and then starts splitting up essentially into different parts. Right? So it first extrudes the building, then it splits off the roof. And then there's like a separate part of the grammar that works to build the roof and the separate one that, that builds the, uh, the, the foundation of the house or the first floor, for instance, right? And then there is like a, another split that, now this little script works on the, the, the windows and that's the window arrangement and then the other one works in the roof tiles, right? So, uh, and in, in this way, you can actually build extremely complex, like really arbitrarily complex geometries. You have a, a, a rule set to turn sparse information into very complex, rich 3D geometries. And we're doing really all kinds of really crazy stuff. They're building really realistic churches, for instance. Uh, that's something the artists really, artists really like to work on. 
where you have to, you, at the input is really just the, the footprint of a church and you get out this really amazing you know, rich uh, 3D um, representation of a, of a uh, medieval church. And the split grammar is then, as I understand it correctly, it's written by your artist or it's written by in a That's combination right. of a software development. Aha, interesting. And did you actually experiment? Because I was thinking when I was reading this, did you experiment with some kind of code synthesis for this kind of grammar? So, uh, to, in some way... That's a good question. That's a good question. Not yet, but it's uh, it's one of our yeah, more interesting R&D topics, I would say, for the future, for sure. Right? Uh, you... Right now, we're um, so the way we constrain these 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 grammars. You can think of it of you have this this uh, this space of all the possible geometries, right? And then you take the inputs and use them to constrain this space. And the way we do it is, um, I would say, um, you know, by selection of different prototypes, right? Mm -hmm. We select this prototype and then the rest just unfolds. And then uh, we select the color, but there's, like, as you pointed out, you could do it very differently also. You could actually generate a program, right? Mm -hmm. Exactly, yeah. that's yeah. what I'm thinking about. And that, and this, that would be really cool, yeah. And is it actually a moment a deterministic process? This generation out of the, is it this, the, the blueprint, let's say to the creation of 3D representation of the buildings? Yeah, so, uh, so the enrichment pass is actually, it has probabilistic elements. So it, it adds as actually stochasticity wherever there is uncertainty mm -hmm. because there are multiple possible versions of the billing. We you know, pick one at random with a certain set of probabilities. And uh, this also adds to the richness of the, the whole scene, of course. Uh, so given very limited input data just from the top, we can create a very rich and diverse seen uh, even if we don't have the all the details about each building that right? we, uh, we can um, create a very you know the, I would say in some in some sense it's um, we would really like to have more data right and then whenever we have it that's great but if we don't we can still make a super visually compelling scene out of it and I think that's where the stochasticity is a, it's, a, it's a really great tool for that right of course <clears throat> and then if i understand it right then you have your 3d models your 3d reconstructions of the buildings yeah right um looking at at the time actually <laughs> uh we 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 have been taking quite uh, some time here and there's still the second part that i wanted to talk about but there's one thing which i think is a wonderful way to 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 move it and that would be concerning the data and um so um how does it actually work because like as you have been describing here many of the of technologies you have been trying uh found forms of supervised or making use of supervised learning methods so what role does does the or let's say do you have like, in which which part of this pipeline do you need labels and do you need like feedback by humans and do you need um some kind of of, of truth representation that you can use to train and 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 learn from yeah yeah, um, so our starting point was really, we have abundant unlabeled data, essentially the whole Bing Maps database. And it's not just Bing Maps, there are also other providers of global imagery data sets that we can work with and where we're collaborating now with. So 
the, and they're, they're this, these satellites they're constantly circling the circling the earth and they're just producing more and more imagery every single day and so that's that's the one side of it right so the unlabeled data is just massive on on the on the ground truth side of course since we use uh, everything is based on supervised learning so we're doing also semi supervised learning but uh, we still need a certain set of of labels and there's no way around that um and so a lot of our tooling actually revolved around building the super highly effective tools for creating labels in order to to work on uh, on this global scale so i think um the typical approach for labeling for many big companies at least um from what i know is that they they outsource this mm -hmm. to companies in india or, or pakistan or you know some other countries where just uh, manual labor is a little bit cheaper than mm -hmm. in austria and we did the complete opposite we actually hired austrian people and did this completely in-house and uh what this allowed us to do was to work very closely with those people together to create the right workflows to do this very efficiently. And what we ended up with is really um, an approach that uh, we call it live labeling. It's, it's essentially a live prediction view. Why are you labeling? So while you're creating the data, you see immediately what the impact is uh, on the predictions. And uh, this, there's like this brings huge advantages because uh, first of all, the traditional way of labeling, let's say for building footprint detection is really, you take a, an image, 1K image, satellite imagery, and there's like five, 500 billings on that image. And then the laborers would have to accurately trace the outlines of each and every single building, 500 of them on this image. And it's just, this is not, not a lot of fun to be honest, right? And it's also, it takes just a very long time to do a single image. Mm -hmm. It's super inefficient. And so we just knew that we had to change the way this is done. And uh, now what we're doing is really very sparse labeling. So we 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 start out with a prediction of, of an existing model and we only look at the errors that model is making. And the cool thing is that, that humans are really good at spotting errors. So when mm -hmm. you have a, an image and an overlay with the, the, the semantic segmentation map, humans are very, very good at spotting, you know, any small discrepancies and errors. So this part is actually, you know, instant almost. Our visual system, the human visual system is just perfect for this. And then you can directly jump to this area and correct the mistake that, that the AI has made there. And this is the only thing you have to do. Everything else is already working. So you, you don't waste time on all the, the buildings that are already working. This is the big, big difference, I think, in our workflow. That, so that if I understand it correctly, it goes a bit in the direction of active learning, or do I understand it? So where you have That's a, absolutely right. Yeah. a soft labeler yeah. before, and then, then you have these corrections by humans. But I uh, suppose that this is still done through like, at least like the feedback that the labelers are providing uh, uh, is more in a traditional way where they mark them by, by hand in some way, uh, this area that are problematic. Yeah, uh, so th there's, this is how we started out. And now the, the next step that we started to integrate now is actually automatic suggestions by the systems. So, and then we're in full active learning terrain. Uh, and it's just amazing to see it actually work out. It's, it's really cool. And so we have uh, now, I think a team of, um, we just ramped it up to, I think seven or so, seven to 10 people working with the system. And it's, you know, it's a lot of fun.
Just a thought that just came to my head, which I found funny a bit, is that uh, with your background in neuroscience and your mentioning of Neuralink, I was just thinking, um, how nice would it be if you have some kind of a, a, a cap that people put on and then you're just looking at your screen there. They, through their attention mechanism, you can detect, ah, they're looking at that part, maybe there's a problem there. And then through some kind of automatic feedback process, yeah. errors are detected and corrected. That will be amazing because it's also so so effortless. I think exactly. So already, exactly. if you look at uh, this, it, the labeling tools that we created, it's so much more fun. Actually, when I, when I was working with the early prototypes of this, I I just found myself getting stuck with labeling for a long time because it was just, just so much more fun than uh, thinking hard about other stuff. Right? Uh, officially, I was trying out the you know the, the system, but it's really a lot of fun to work with. It's almost like a game. Uh, because you get instantly rewarded if you change if you fix something you see it actually having an impact on the output and that's 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 just a very re rewarding way to to work and uh, i think if you connect it with Neuralink, it would probably even be better right exactly yeah amazing but then just maybe um to cut it to come to the to the second part which would be the tooling but sh shortly before that there were two things that i wanted to ask you concerning the data um, and one thing is the things that you already mentioned before naively i would have imagined that instead of having developing this tooling having let's say high quality uh labeled data or feedback uh, you would go the, the the way that you describe using something like the mechanical turk from amazon or other services that provide you let's say cheap low quality labels so my question is as you went for for the alternative high quality labels how sensitive would you say is your is your system at the moment to mislabeling or in this sense um to the to the input quality to some extent because i guess this is a key uh importance for the, the capability of the system to generalize to other use cases and to take um let's say different kind of inputs yeah absolutely yes Good question. Uh, so I think what we gradually found out, so a mechanical Turk was definitely on the table at some point. We evaluated it and we tried it out for uh, on a small data set and the results were just, you know, unusable in terms of the quality. So I, I, I now know that you, know, you have to work longer with mechanical Turk in order to, to find the right people that actually continue contributing. So um, our initial response was, oh my God, yeah, this is, it's, it's not even worth the couple of cents we're paying here. And uh, uh, this is really when we made the decision to, to go for sparse high quality labels. And this, this has just worked out really great for us. So of course, not, not uh, all the labels are correct and we do find the occasional errors. We also actually have a QA for our labeling process where uh, other people check the, the labels. So this is really important for us. Um, I, and I think um, we, we can use um, also noisy labels, but we prefer to use not, not the noise labels for pre-training. Mm -hmm. And then we fine tune on the really high quality labels. And this combination has been really effective for us at least. understand. Yeah, that makes sense. 
But then let's move it um, to the second part, um, which I wanted to cover with you a bit like the topic of tooling. I mean, we have discussed it a bit before already, and you said you devoted quite some resources and time to develop tools um, that you could make use for, I guess, like especially the labeling part, uh, so that you re reduce the human labor and the human effort needed um, for your system. But I guess like many other tools have been developed in order to 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 have the pipeline that you have. And for me, it's a, it's a bit um, the general topic topic is uh, I would like to frame in something that I would try to summarize in previous episodes of the podcast where I was describing something like um, AI as a service. So what, what I see in the industry at the moment is you, you can see more and more companies are providing um, AI services um, as, let's say, cloud services. We, we talked about it off, uh, off mic once when you mentioned to me Scale AI, for example, which I think is a perfect example, uh, where it's a company that provides you labeling, segmentation, image analysis as a service. And um, at the same time, um, as you said, right, you, f so for, for me, the question is a bit, where do you see, um, how do you see like this balance between making use of AI services provided by those companies, which in this sense are general solutions and um, the, the, the time and resources that you dedicate to developing a business case um, relevant tooling and domain specific tooling? Yeah, awesome question. It's exactly, we're right in the middle of this at the moment. Um, and I think it's, it's an unsolved question at this point still, because it's a constant struggle, to be honest. It's a constant struggle between making sure that we uh, keep enough resources on the internal tooling that's, that keeps it relatively general, so we can quickly move to new projects and new areas and expand and become more efficient over time. So that would be the tooling side. And, and the other part of it is how to actually bring it on the ground to the customer in order to create the maximum value that, that will ensure that you know, people are actually paying for the services, right? Um, because nobody, in the end, the customer doesn't care so much about your tooling. They really just care about the data you can provide and, and when and you know, at what price. And so this, there is a, a definitely attention there because this is also has also to do with short-term versus mid-term you know, revenue stream for instance mm -hmm. like so how do you balance that and it's um since also this is is a very tricky question i think to to balance uh, so is the tooling um so our approach has been i think to invest uh, probably it's it's above average for sure uh on the tooling side and historically this made a lot of sense to us from the beginning based on our experience from gaming and we transferred this concept you now i think to to this to to uh, this new domain where we serve various customers right like insurance companies completely different worlds uh but we still see the tooling as as, as central to our operations and um you know, there's no single answer, I guess, but I personally, my, my personal view is that uh, if you're just interested in short term, mm -hmm. then just go for the use case, right? And try to, to put your best people on it. But if you're, if you're building uh, a bigger, um, if you try to create a company that dominates a certain niche in the market, then you have to invest heavily into tooling because Otherwise, other people will do. 
Mm -hmm. And then your whatever head start you had will vanish very quickly because you didn't invest in the right tooling. That's my personal view on it. Yeah. And I think so far I've been very, yeah. But as you said, right, it's definitely there's like it's a balance between like like you said, like how much investment are you willing to, to make in order for future gains and um how much do you want to to get results quickly? Yeah, and it's it's very difficult, you know, so to, to keep the resources on the tooling sites, even though you know you could actually make a quick buck right somewhere else. Uh, this is very difficult, but yeah, it's it's part of the challenge. I can imagine. Well, looking at the clock, um, I think we're running uh, quite already um, to the, the to the soon of the end of the podcast. Um, but before we close, I like to ask my guests in general what they would recommend for someone starting out in this business. So someone starting out in the area of machine learning, data science and artificial intelligence, if they uh, want to get into the field, they're interested in the field, uh, how should they start out? And if you have some recommendations on how to enter the field. Yeah. Mm, well, I think it depends on what you first of all, find your passion. I mean, it's sort of a cliche thing to say, but uh, find what, whatever drives you. For me, it was you know, let's say if initially it was trying to understand what uh, what intelligence really is, how the human brain works, etc. And then uh, just you have wholeheartedly follow that passion. Um, and uh, concretely, for for people like me, I would say, um, I think it's still a good idea to to explore uh, to do a PhD, but maybe not in machine learning as such. But I would really I had really good experience doing a computational neuroscience PhD because you come into contact with a much um, broader view on artificial intelligence in that community. Uh, because right now the the every deep learning is just all a hype, right? And there's mm -hmm. very very little outside of that. But in computational neuroscience, at least when I did my PhD, there was still a lot of the older literature was still in, in uh, of artificial intelligence was still highly relevant and you get a really good overview of many different techniques in the space. Um, so I can recommend that from my own experience. Um, and uh, what, I, what I don't think makes too much sense for somebody like me is to, you know, try to optimize model X to get gain one or two more percent by doing this or that tweak in the neural architecture. And then, you know, the, the, if you if you find yourself working on these kind of things, I would recommend you to find somebody else to work with, honestly, uh, because it's it's really a waste of time. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's if you're like me, right? So I, I realized that, that um, there are many different motivations to enter the field and then that um, to some extent, uh, I totally respect that. Um, so there's also value, of course, in, in trying to, to, to go for the short-term improvements, small improvements. Uh, but then I would really go for industry mm -hmm. because there is a much higher reward there than in doing a PhD. Um, and you have, you actually, if you end up working for the right company, let's say we have actually some job postings out there, then you get a lot of freedom in uh, you know, also doing R&D, but very applied R&D. And you can, whenever you, you gain a couple of more percentages of accuracy, this actually has an impact on you know, customers. It's not just a couple of people reading your paper. So uh, I think, yeah, 
that's what I would recommend. Um, and if you want to do something applied, you know, find the, the coolest companies out there and just apply. We, we always, um, I do a lot of interviews, of course, and uh, uh, the, the best people are typically those that are just driven by their passion. You know, they just, they want to know, they want to, they want to experiment, they want to, they want to engineer. And so if you can transport that, then you're going to get the job probably, even though you don't have 10 years of experience in the field, right? So it's, um, yeah, in the end, it's about, you know, making sure that you actually work on the stuff that really interests you. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I must say I agree. I think it's it's very good for people to have the opportunity, especially starting from from the education at university, either doing a master or doing a PhD, if they have like a more general view on on on, on computational um, the computational aspects, and even if they have domain expertise, and then they can always go and, and and let's say learn the right tools and the right techniques that they need for the particular problem they want to solve. Right. Yeah. Well, with this thing, uh, Stefan, I want to thank you very much. It has been a big honor and a big pleasure. And there would have been so many other things as well um, that would have been worth t discussing, but time is limited. And um, it would still say it was a very nice interview. And I, again, want to thank you very much for, for uh, sharing your time and your experience. Yeah. Uh, thanks a lot, Manuel, for the great questions. It was also a big pleasure for me. And you know, all the best in the future. Maybe we do this again sometime. Definitely. It would be nice. Then have a nice day. Bye. You too. Bye.